Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, September 30th, we are studying Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30 through 32, verse 18. Today's text is the beginning of the Song of Moses. Moses gives Israel a song to remind them of God's unfailing faithfulness, even when they prove themselves faithless. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have this regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, glad to be with you again today. As we get started today, Pastor Hoppe, give us some context. What do we need to know about Deuteronomy and what Moses has been doing leading up to his song in chapter 32? Sure. So, I mean, the overall context, obviously, of, you know, Deuteronomy is here. We're kind of getting ready to go into the promised land and we're getting that uh, repetition of the law and also, um, you know, at times uh, a few extra details and things like that about the law. But basically, this is being laid out to talk uh, to the people of God about what they are to do, how they are to live, uh, since they are the chosen of God, since they are now uh, the redeemed of God out of Egypt and heading towards the promised land. Uh, we get, you know, all this kind of uh, instruction of what they are to do. And then I guess I'd say in our immediate context, we're getting here where Moses is getting ready to turn over the reins to Joshua. Uh, and uh, because he, of course, is not going to be going over into the promised land, though he will uh, get to see it uh, from afar. Uh, but as he gets ready, he kind of puts this song uh, together, it seems, uh, as a way uh, to still have a voice way into the future uh, of God's people. Of course, it's really the Lord's voice, uh, but he comes up with this uh, song, which he wants the people to to learn uh, both. So like you said, they'll have a, a memory of what has been done, but also he says this is also going to be a, a song that condemns them as well. So this is the, the first song that we've had in the book of Deuteronomy. For the most part, Deuteronomy has just been narrative. It's been Moses preaching, and now he's going to, to sing. And most English Bibles will have it such that it is set off in poetic type. So you, you can see just at a glance, you're dealing with a, a different kind of literature. Just with that in mind, it doesn't have to be too detailed, but what, I mean, why is this a song? What does that mean? What are we going to encounter in this, this song? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the overall style is a little bit different in the, in the sense that it's a little bit more, I guess you would say poetic, right? In its uh, sort of style and fashion. Uh, but also, um, I think that to me, the key thing here is just that it is, why is it in that style? Well, it is because it is to be remembered. It is supposed to be, um, you know, you think of those songs, you get stuck in your head uh, that you can't get out of your mind 
mind. It's sort of supposed to be that, but instead of filled with something like, you know, baby shark, do, 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 you know, instead. Why did you have to say that one? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But instead of that, you have the truth of the Lord. And the, the purpose is that it would be stuck in our heads as well. Okay, so so songs serve a purpose of memory, and particularly at this stage in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses knows he's about to die, to give the people of Israel a song to hold on to, I think is, is a very wise move. And of course, as you said, this is the, the voice of God that Moses is, you know, he is speaking the word of God to the people here. And I, I do think that there's, there's evidence that this song, you know, at least in, in some sense, implants itself in the the hearts of some Israelites. I, I find some similarities in what this song talks about in terms of the faithlessness of the people of Israel and the way that particularly Psalm 78 stands out to me where there's this, it's a long Psalm of history in, in which one of the parts of it is that the, the fathers are to tell their children, hey, you really shouldn't be like me. You, you need to learn from my unfaithfulness. And there's, I think, a sense of that in Deuteronomy 32. And again, the fact that he's at the end of his life, you know, we've been talking about the book of Deuteronomy as a, a farewell sermon of Moses or a last address right before he dies. So I, I don't hope, I hope this is not too impious, but this is Moses's swan song. If you, I don't know if I can say that, yeah. but he's, he's giving that at the end of, of his life here. No, yeah, I, I think certainly uh, that's it. And I think, you're right that I mean, I mean, you can imagine, right? I mean, even if, uh, you know, someone in our country was very important and they left, you know, some piece of written prose right before they died, I think that would have a, you know, a life of its own too. But here we're talking about Moses, right? Which is so central to all the people of God and particularly, right, this journey from uh, Egypt to the promised land. And so, uh, you know, I don't think it's unusual that they would take this to heart. And then, like you said, that we would find other places where there is, um, you know, the similar language or similar style uh, used because they're kind of learning from the master, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, Moses is the the prophet above all prophets in the Old Testament, and so it would make sense that what he says and sings finds its way into the hearts of the people throughout Israel's history. With that, I want to just take a look at the very first verse of our text today, the, the brief introduction before we get into the song itself. Chapter 31, verse 30 says this, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished, in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. And then in chapter 32, we actually encounter the words of, as it says, this song, it also says Moses spoke. So just in terms of how we should imagine this happening and picture it in our minds, what we're calling this a song. Should we imagine Moses, you know, singing it like, like we sing in church or like we sing along with a radio? How should we picture this? Yeah, I think in one sense, we probably have to admit we don't exactly no and and I know in studying for this you know there are certainly people who say no he he absolutely sung it and then there are others that say no he absolutely spoke it and again both are making a textual argument right <laughs> one from the word say and one from the word a song right um I tend to think you know we I always think of this in our liturgy right when we are right after the proper preface or the or the proper preface I should say ends right with this you know, with angels and archangels, and then evermore praising you and saying, and then we always sing. And I'm always tempted 
to say there. I, you know, I, I try to just, you know, say the uh, black there, right, as they say. Uh, but I'm always tempted to say evermore praising you and singing, right, because we're going to sing. But uh, so I think that's one possibility that it's just sort of an idiom that still means to sing the song. Otherwise, I suppose we could imagine him. I think of it maybe as, you know, if if you were teaching children uh, a new hymn, right? And you kind of say it first and then sing it. I guess maybe that's, I'm not sure that's, you know, I don't have any reason to think that's exactly how it went down, but that's kind of what I imagine, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when, when the scriptures speak in this way, Moses spoke the words of this song, and you, you see this in other places. It, for example, in the New Testament, you've got the Magnificat, which is usually referred to as Mary's song. I think you can tell usually by the text that you are dealing with a, a poetic way of speaking, and it has been set to music later in the church's life. There's in the in the hymnal, the Lutheran service book, number 926, and that and that hymnal takes part of Deuteronomy chapter 32 and sets it to music. So these things do get set to music, at least later in the church's life. How exactly Moses was speaking or singing or performing it is maybe difficult to tell, but maybe, you know, I mean, I think we have a, a certain context when it comes to singing. Like I mentioned, you know, we sing in church or we sing along with the radio. Maybe we sing in the shower. The, maybe that we need a wider conception of what it means to sing and, and not be quite so limited to just those contexts such that this, the way Moses presented this was, a, was some kind of exalted style that you knew it was more than, okay, sit down, I'm going to tell you a story. There's something different, uh, as you've mentioned all along, a teaching that's going on here and a way to put these words into the people's hearts that a song that music accomplishes in a way more than or, or different than just telling a story works. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right that we probably do need a little bit broader of an understanding of what all this could entail. But you also put it well that, I mean, it's it's different, right? When you when you come to it, you say, wait, what's he doing now, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's not just continuing his normal form of speech. That's right. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1 now. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. 
He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth." That is where we stop today in Moses' song that takes us through Deuteronomy 32, verse 18. Uh, so, Pastor Hoppy, let's talk a little bit about the, the introduction to the psalm, the, the song, the psalm. The first three verses, I think, give us a, a bit of an introduction before Moses gets into the meat. So that first verse, Moses asks both the heavens and the earth to listen. Why, why does Moses start this way? Well, you know, I think we get here this idea that, um, you know, God himself, you know, at times calls the heavens and the earth sort of as witness. And I, I don't know if this is, you know, how you would put this, but I mean, in one sense, right, there's no one uh, above God, of course, to call upon uh, to sort of, you know, uh, verify what's happening or to kind of give a, a, a credibility to what's being said. And so he often calls his whole creation, essentially, uh, to sort of bear that witness. And so I think in a lot of senses, this is what he is doing here. Um, also, I think, you know, sometimes we kind of forget and maybe, you know, we have trouble kind of uh, personifying at times, you know, the heavens and the earth in this sense of when all this goes down, right? When the people rebel and then God is eventually uh, going to, you know, send the people into exile, literally the, the heavens and the earth are sort of uh, bound up in that conflict, right? I mean, maybe it's easiest to think of the earth, uh, but in every way, everything is sort of a mess. And so he calls them here, I think, to be kind of the ultimate testifier uh, to witness what he is about to say. Yeah, back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in verse 19, at the end of Moses's third sermon in Deuteronomy, he, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. And we talked a little bit then that in, in ancient Near Eastern treaties, gods were often called upon as witnesses to these treaties. Well, when the Lord makes a covenant with his people, there are no other gods that you can call as witness because, and we, we're hearing that in Moses's song, he's the only God. And so the, the witnesses then are, are heaven and earth, as you said, his, his creation that would see it all. And I think there's, I think there's something to the fact also, as you were saying, that heaven and earth are, are bound up in this, that God's creation suffers the effects of the, the sin of the people. Uh, I'm reminded of the way Paul speaks in uh, Romans 8, where he talks about creation groaning until the, the redemption of the, the resurrection that's coming. And so to use heaven and earth here as witnesses uh, fits for a number of reasons. In, in verses two and three, then, it sounds like Moses is laying out what his song is going to do, or at least what he intends for his song to do before he really jumps in in verse four. Uh, what do we find there in, in verses two and three? 
Yeah, and I think real quick before we jump into the specifics of that, we need to understand that this song is sort of prophetic in nature. And what we mean yeah. by that is that when you hear him talking, um, you know, you go, wait a second, right? Is he talking about his day, right? Uh, because, you know, soon he'll kind of talk about it as if, you know, the people have already tasted of the promised land and now are being rebellious against it. And again, if you know, just know the basics of biblical chronology or have been following along in this study, you know, they're not actually in the promised land yet. So, you know, all of this psalm is sort of Moses speaking prophetically, you know, actually after uh, they get into the promised land, or I should say not, you know, him literally after, but from the perspective, right, of being uh, in the promised land, uh, then that rebellion uh growing and continuing there. And the only reason I say that then is, you know, up front here, right? He he has this hope, even though he is, in one sense, prophesying what's going to happen, right? That the people are going to be rebellious. At the same time, he speaks about his teaching with the hopes, right? That it will be like rain upon the earth, right? That it will refresh and bring new life. And kind of verse three, then, you know, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord, right? And then everybody else, and maybe the heavens and the earth here are included on this too, right? Should should ascribe greatness to our God. So this would be ideal that they hear this song. Uh, it brings new life. It, it you know, quashes sin and uh, leads them to repentance. So they have new life. Uh, then out of that, right, they say, great is our God. That's, that's the hope. Uh, even though, like I said, he's going to go on to kind of tell us it's not going to actually go down that way. Sure. And I, I mean, the image that Moses uses here in verse two is one that I've always found very comforting. It, I think it's similar to the way the Lord speaks in Isaiah chapter 55, where he talks about his His word coming down like rain or snow, and it, it waters the earth, and it does what it's going to do. I've always found it particularly helpful, especially in a place like Texas, and, and maybe this is true in, in your part of Kansas as well, where you know it can get pretty dry for quite some time, and this this summer in particular in Texas was was very dry. But when that rain does come, just I mean, how amazing it is to see the refreshment of the earth, and that is what God intends with His word, and certainly what Moses intends as he speaks and sings God's word here. I also find it helpful in the the context of this song, as we heard part of it, and we will keep hearing more of it. You know, there's a lot of of judgment, language of judgment for the rebellion of the people in this song. And yet even that, that what we would, you know, if we want to classify it as law, even that law is ultimately intended by God to refresh, to renew, to be this gentle rain that, that brings life to his people. And I, I, I find that helpful when we come to a, you know, a text like this and it's going to, wow, this is, this is pretty, pretty tough. Still, God's intention is to refresh and renew his people with his life-giving word. Yeah, though, right, though, uh, you know, weeping may endure for the night, joy cometh in the morning, right? I mean, in the sense that, yes, God does bring his law and he does bring uh, times of drought, uh, both, uh, you know, physical um drought, uh, like, yeah, we're experiencing that here too. Uh, but also, you know, even at times, you know, we get these scary thoughts of a, a drought of God's word as well. Um, but, but it, like you said, that's never his aim. It's never his goal. He's not a God of death. He's a God of life. 
So in, in verse 4, then, as Moses continues into the, the song, he starts by naming the Lord as the rock. And in the ESV, the word rock is capitalized. And this particular title for God really, I think, helps to guide this song of Moses. It shows up several times, and I think it's meant to be a foundational image that Moses wants us to have in our mind for for the Lord, for God, as we think about him. Talk a little bit about this title, this name for God, The Rock. Yeah, so I think this, like you said, it really does become a, a name of God almost in, you know, the most proper sense. I mean, not, not taking over, uh, for Yahweh, but in the sense of that from, you know, maybe from this point forward or maybe even before this, but where, wherever this name kind of gets established with the people of God, it becomes something that when you hear the rock, there's no doubt who you're talking about, right? You're talking about, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? That's, that's who we're talking about. And of course, the image of the rock is, is that of stability, right? The, the image of, uh, immovability, um, that, that it's something that can be, uh, a foundation underneath one. And, you know, and, and again, this is what God always intends to be for us, right? Is this firm place that we can both rest and also, you know, sometimes that image is also that place then that we can build from uh, when we have that firm foundation, you know, underneath us. Um, the the word here is, uh, uh, and my Hebrew pronunciation is, you know, probably not going to win any awards, but uh, essentially like zur, right, is, is kind of um, how you would pronounce this. Um, and, uh, again, you know, it, it can be used just in the literal sense of a rock, right? But here, obviously it takes on, like we said, uh, I don't want to use the phrase nickname. That sounds too, <laughs> uh, informal, but, a, but, a, a really a name that people then know God by. And this phrase and this Hebrew word then become kind of part of the language of God's people so that, you know, think about how many times in the Psalms, uh, the phrase, the rock, you know, God is our rock. Are these the rock of our salvation? You know, it's used many, many times. Um, also, one of the interesting things about this is uh, when you see uh, some of the names, if you're looking like in Numbers chapter three, where they're looking through, where they're listing, you know, all the people of all the different tribes and everything, counting everybody up, you get a lot of these names that end in this Zer, like Eliezer or, you know, things like that. And again, it's sort of like the names we have that have a reference to Yahweh in them, right? Where, uh, again, this is a way of ascribing honor by naming our child something that has to do with the rock, which is, which is God. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the basics of it, I think, is that, you know, this, this becomes a word that is, is just, um, you know, uh, speaks of stability, of immovability. And if there's one last thing, right, this is the same word that's used uh, earlier in Deuteronomy, right, when the water comes forward from the rock, right? Um, and in that sense, right, we have this beautiful picture of the rock not only being a firm place, but being a life-giving place as well. Right. And then that's that's a very striking image that the water would come from the rock that what you otherwise might think is is something that's dead. Actually, this is 
the Lord gives life from it, which is a, a wonderful thing. And of course, there's there's any number of places we could go with this imagery. It, it certainly gets picked up in the Psalms. I think you've, you've quoted from some already. David uses this regularly in his Psalms. And I think even into the, the New Testament, and perhaps it's not always the exact same word, but the, the thoughts of like a stone, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the idea of, of building on a firm foundation. All of, all of these are related images that get, of course, applied to our, our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, I, I was just singing in my own mind, on Christ the solid rock I stand, yeah, right. all other ground is sinking sand. So this is a very important biblical image that, that Moses uses here. And I, I think the rest of the verse then helps to describe the way that he's going to, to make use of this image. Uh, talk about the way then Moses describes the Lord as the rock here in verse 4. Yeah, so kind of this, you know, uh, the the reason he is that place you want to stand uh, is because he does, you know, everything perfectly. All his ways are justice, right? So there's nothing of, you know, something happening that ought not happen. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately kind of this idea, and I'm going to kind of, you know, jump ahead a little bit here. Soon we're going to be told that the people in the next verse there are, uh, blemished. So they, you know, we could say they are spotted, right? And mm -hmm. the picture here is that God is spotless, right? He is, he is perfect. And, and why does that matter? Well, one, it matters because obviously God's people are the, the beneficiary of him being this way. But it's also important that, you know, to kind of continue with the language that, you know, we are, as God's called people and the Israelites here of old, are called to be chips off the old block, so to speak, right? Uh, so so we are supposed to, again, strive for holiness and justice and being faithful to God and to others. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do. And not just in the sense of, you know, that we will will ourselves to do it, but that this is actually who God makes us to be in his, his grace. And so part of the real sadness of this part of this song is not just that the people are rebelling, but that God has made them to be something other. He has made them to be upright, and yet they are, you know, fallen over in sin. Um, and so it really heightens the idea here that uh, we really have to get get the sense that what God is, which we find in this verse, is what his people are supposed to be, and yet they're much the opposite often. And yeah, we'll see how that continues throughout the rest of our portion of Moses' song today, but we're going to do so on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about Deuteronomy 32 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Do you know a church worker who is struggling? Stress, conflict, grief, isolation, and confusion are all genuine, real challenges church workers face. That's why Lutheran Church Extension Fund has dedicated its latest issue of Interest Time to church worker wellness. Hello, my name is Rahima Kavuga, Director of Synod Relations at LCEF, and I'm inviting you to check out stories about church workers who have overcome struggles in their ministry work. Find these inspiring testimonials and more at interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? 
expensive, liberal, woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 30th. We're studying Deuteronomy 31, verse 30 through chapter 32, verse 18 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were looking at how Moses lays out the Lord as the rock, the one whose work is perfect, whose ways are all justice. He is faithful and without iniquity, and he has called his people, he has created his people to be like him. But as we've already seen in Israel's history up to this point, and as we will certainly see in Israel's history after this point, they don't they don't live up to that. They constantly sin. And as as a reminder, you mentioned earlier that this song is, is very prophetic in nature. It's speaking about things that Israel will do in the future. And it sounds like that's what's happening in verse five. Now that Moses has laid out who the Lord is, now he's going to say to the people, this is who you are and and this is what your future actually looks like. Take us into the verse five. Yeah. So, I mean, we, as we said here, right, they're supposed to be uh, spotless like him, but right. Instead, we're told here that they are, they are blemished. Um, and, and the language here is very strong, right? That because they've dealt corruptly with him. And again, I think, you know, we do want to say that when those phrases are used, they say, well, when have they dealt corruptly with him? The main kind of emphasis on this, and I think this becomes clearer as we go longer into the song, is that they're being this way right in the promised land, right? I mean, uh, and and like I said, here they are, they're, they're the children of God to start off, right? They're given every advantage that they might walk in these ways. And that's manifested in the fact that God has brought them into this wonderful promised land. And yet, what do they do? They deal corruptly with him. And, you know, this is a word of, I think, exile here when it says, right, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. I mean, that's that's full strength law right there, right? He says, these are not my kids anymore. Um, and why? Because they are a crooked and twisted generation. And so, um, again, God gives everything. He gives every advantage. And yet the people, uh, instead of responding with thanksgiving and, and obedience, uh, instead they respond with corruption. Well, and, and in the, the context of the rock being this one who is faithful and just and upright, and now the people are described as crooked and twisted, I mean, what a what a contrast between the two. And I think that's that's part of what Moses is doing here. In verse six, he, he asks a question that I think makes perfect sense. Like, why would you do this? Why why would you repay the Lord in this way? When you think about how good he is, why would you be that way back to him? Yeah. And you know, this always um I, I think this is sort of the basic charge against the people of God uh in this, especially this part of the song that we're gonna deal with today. It's just like I said, that God gave them everything and yet they rebelled. He's this wonderful creator father, right? He's not a, a deadbeat dad at all. He's He is the model father. And yet they still uh, are rebellious children, right? To the point where they're unrecognizable uh, even as his children. And it 
this whole section kind of always reminds me. Um, I know some of our listeners will, you know, remember that some of our churches, at least on Good Friday, uh, use a, a service called the chief service. And near the end of that service, there's what what is called the reproaches. Um, and it has these words there, which I think are very similar. And yet every year they they strike me, right? They, I mean, as far as law, man, I don't know if, if there's words that hit me more every year, but, you know, it says, thus says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people? And wherein have I offended you? Answer me. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? My people, is this how you thank your God, O my people? I mean, that's really what Moses is saying here to start, right? Every advantage. And yet, what? how do they thank him? By being disobedient, by being crooked, as you said, right? Instead of straight and uh, uh, square and, you know, fitting of a cornerstone, right? Instead, uh, crooked. Nothing else can be built on it that would last. Hmm. Now, in, in verse 7, then, Moses calls upon the people to remember, which has been a key theme in, in several places in the book of Deuteronomy, that the people would remember what the Lord had done. Here it's remember the days of old. And and if you forget, by the way, go ask your father or your elders. Uh, what What is Moses saying in verse 7? Well, I think one, and I admit this is a, a soapbox I like to get on every chance I have. So <laughs> uh, we, you know, we get this just reminder here again in the midst of this song that the natural way that the faith is supposed to pass down and the remembrance of God is to be taught, right, is from father to child. Right. Uh, and so here, instead of like, you know, Deuteronomy six, of course, where there's the instruction to the parents that they are to, you know, the fathers in particular, that they are uh, to be teaching, you know, when they lie down and when they sleep and when they go out and when they come in, all those words here, it's kind of the opposite where you're almost saying, Hey, dad, weren't you supposed to tell me about something, right? Uh, weren't you supposed to to teach me this? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think this is just real practical stuff that we have to take to heart, both about what it means to be a father and what it means to be a child. And then, you know, it broadens here too. you know, listen to your elders as well. So it doesn't just have to be our biological fathers. Uh, but but the whole idea here is God's people, it is part of our faith always to remember what God has done. And in particular, if we kind of see this as, you know, from the perspective of being sort of at the end of the time uh, where they're in the promised land, right? Moses now here is saying, remember really kind of the period of the time, probably when Moses is active, right? Remember how God brought you out of Egypt. Remember how he provided for you during the wilderness, though you were rebellious then, right? And now, right, remember how he brought you into this land and divided up the inheritance and all of those things. This was the verse that brought to my mind Psalm 78, which is one that we have, we studied here at Grace not that long ago, which is why it was in my mind. And at the, the beginning of Psalm 78, the, the opening portions of it, the, the writer there it invites, you know, the fathers here to teach the children. And among the things that they are to teach the children is, of course, the faithfulness of God. He doesn't want the people to forget the works of God, and he wants the people to keep his commandments. But in Psalm 78, verse 8, one of the things that the fathers are to teach the children is that they should not be like their fathers 
a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And, and thinking about this song of Moses and, and its idea, as you were saying, you know, to put this into the memory of the people, that, that part of what we do as fathers teaching our children or, you know, as, as, as Christians speaking to the next generation of Christians, as you, you know, we've got the elders here in, in place as well. Part of what we're doing is like we're not talking about the good old days when we did such a great job. We're talking about what how God was faithful when we were faithless, such that that part of our teaching. I just find this striking because it's not usually the way we think about reminiscing about, you know, again, the quote, good old days. We think about telling all of our, our heroic tales and, and the Lord would have us to tell all his heroic tales all the while we're being faithless. You know, and I, I think you see this play out in the scriptures, how often you see the, the quote, heroes of the story, men like Moses, David, Peter, Paul, and the scriptures are never afraid to tell us the sins of these, of these men, of these saints, and, and how that's, that also is a part of, of our role as Christians is to be honest with the next generation. Hey, here's the way that, that we've failed, and yet here's how God has been faithful. I think that's maybe one aspect that, that sometimes I know I forget, but I think you see it again in Deuteronomy 32 and in Psalm 78. Yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right, right? And we get reminders of this at different times as far as um, you know, we're even the period again when we're talking of Moses, right, of how the people rebelled and fell in the wilderness, right? We're to remember that, right? Lest we lest we follow uh in those terrible footsteps, right? Uh so yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot of that where uh throughout we see uh both God's faithfulness and our own um, temptation to fall and then the actual acts where we fall so that hopefully we don't just walk in those same footsteps. And like you said, part of that has to be just from a practical standpoint that all of us have to be able to look back on our life and repent of things we did or lies we believed uh, because that does help teach the next generation, right? If we we just cling to everything we did as good, uh, we're being poor teachers for our children. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's, I I just I was reflecting on it with Psalm seventy eight. It seems Deuteronomy thirty two plays into it, and it, it strikes me as something that it would be easy to neglect, and and yet it is important. It is a part of our catechesis of our children. Now, as as Moses continues his song, he does really emphasize before he gets to the faithlessness of the people, he is going to to speak plenty of God's faithfulness, starting in verse eight. And they're, you know, all the way probably through about verse 14 or so. Take us into those verses. Give us give us the highlights of how Moses describes God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. Well, yeah. So I think largely here, you know, he's talking about, um, again, this whole trip from Egypt uh, into the promised land. Maybe, you know, the, I think the only question is whether it starts before that, which is possible too. But I mean, when you just get these wonderful pictures, one, uh, you know, the first one is this kind of idea that as God, uh, you know, we're told that God de determines, right, uh, people's places in every generation, right, where they're going to live, the boundaries uh, in which this nation is going to be in that nation. And, you know, sometimes we forget this, right? Because we get so into the practicalities of how nations move in 
are formed in history that we forget God's hand is there. And this gives us this gracious why. Well, one of the big reasons why is he does this for the good of his people. And again, the main place we see this probably, or the easiest place to see it, is when they do get to the promised land, right? That this land that other people were living in, right? God has set apart as the, you know, the, the uh, inheritance of his people. And so therefore, the other nations, you know, have to go. Now, again, they, they'd been rebellious and sinful. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff we can talk about there. But, but also God's plan was always to give this land uh, to his people. So that's a, a gracious thing, right? Um, then when you get the contrast, like we said, there's a contrast between what God is and what God's people become. But there's also a contrast here between what God's people were and what they are in God or in Christ, right? Is, you know, when he found him, he was in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, right? This is not a picture of strength or well-being. Uh, and, you know, scholars will argue, are we talking about the wilderness here between Egypt and the promised land? Or are we talking about just more that this is used in sort of a, a, a metaphorical kind of way to speak just that, you know, kind of when God tells Israel other places, you know, I didn't choose you because you were strong, right? I didn't choose you because you were great in number. No, I found you wandering in the wilderness, right? And yet uh, I, I cared for you and kept, kept you as the apple of my eye. Um, and then, you know, this, the other image we get here, which is beautiful is this, you know, that he cares, uh, for them, like, a an Eagle mother here, uh, would, uh, watch over her young, uh, when they are learning to fly, right? Both <laughs> in one sense, maybe giving them a nudge out of the nest, right? So that they learn to fly, but then also using, uh, the pinions, the, the, you know, the, the, the wings uh, and, and all the structure there to also keep those people safe. And then the very last thing in these, you know, kind of after verse 14 is we get this talk of milk and honey, right? And we remember that this is the promise, right? A land of milk and honey. And here he says, Hey, you got that, right? The produce of the field, honey out of a rock, right? Oil out of the flinty rock, curds, or some people think that word there is cream from the herd, but, you know, all the good stuff, right? Uh, everything you ever wanted, you received. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this is filled with God's grace, his mercy, his provision. Uh, God has done all of this for you. Yeah, it, it really is a beautiful section to re remember God's faithfulness to his people, Israel, from taking them from nothing and giving them absolutely everything. We've seen this in other places in Deuteronomy as well. Just the, you know, you're talking about the wilderness and, and perhaps when that might have be, been. It, it reminds me a, a little bit of the way Moses speaks in Deuteronomy 26, where he talks about the people going into the promised land and when they bring their offerings and what they're to say when they bring those offerings, they're, they're to say that, you know, my father was a wandering Aramean. Right. So, you know, I mean, this has been true throughout the history of Israel that, you know, they've always just kind of been a nobody and, and the Lord gave them absolutely everything. And, and what a wonderful thing I, I do. I appreciate what you said about verses eight and nine. And just, I think in general, you, you see the way that the Lord works through uh, what we might call secular history you know, I mean, secular history can be very fun to learn the rise and fall of nations and important battles. And those are just wonderful things to learn. 
But to keep in mind, you know, what sometimes seems maybe senseless to us or directed by really important people, all of it is in fact directed by the Lord for the purposes of his people. And that's a, that's a wonderful comfort even still today when we see the, the rise and fall of nations and all the, the tumult in the, the political world around us, to know that, that God remains the one in charge of it all and in charge of it for the sake of his chosen people is, I think, just a wonderful comfort. Uh, so, I mean, you know, a number of things that, that are here for, for our good. One, one that I think you, you mentioned, but you didn't quite uh, talk too much about, you, the, the image of the apple of his eye. I mean, I've, I've always been drawn to that image personally. <laughs> Why, uh, what, what does that mean to be the apple of someone's eye? Right. So the, the idea that Hebrew here is like literally something like the, the diminished man, the little man in your eye. And you're like, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, the idea here, right, is that, you know, sometimes, again, if you are looking at someone else, you can actually see your own reflection in the person's pupil in their, or, or you're in their eye there. Um, you know, we, we maybe see it better if they're wearing sunglasses, right? We get this picture, this, those reflective, uh, sunglasses that everybody wore in the 1980s or whatever, uh, that you could see your own reflection. But this is the idea. And again, it's another wonderful, comforting idea that God is looking so intently at us that literally we reflect in his eye, right? So he's, cause you can't be, uh, in that person's eye, if they're looking away from you, if that makes sense. And so, you know, this is the Lord lifting up his countenance upon you, right? Looking at you and smiling upon you. That's how he viewed all of Israel, right? To be that apple of his eye. So all of this goodness from the Lord, graciousness from the Lord, this is what he has done as their father, as the one who made them and established them, as Moses is already saying. But in verse 15, there comes a pretty sharp turn. And, and here the, the title that I assume is used for Israel, and I apologize if, if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. Maybe you can tell me. It, in verse 15, it says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. What, what is the name Jeshurun? How should we say it, first of all? Well, I'm going to go with exactly what you said. So then right. if we both say the same thing, you know, then <laughs> then we'll sound we'll like we the knew. Next guest and see how he, he handles it. There you it. go. No, it sounds <laughs> good. Yeah, maybe someone <laughs> can correct both of us. But yeah, I mean, the word itself, what it what it means again, or the kind of, you know, what what's being said here again is simply this idea that this nation is to be upright and just like their father. Um, and so it, there's a real contrast here uh, that they are to be that way. And instead, what do they become, right? They grow fat and they kick, right? Kind of a, almost a stubborn uh, disobedience here, right? Uh, fat and, and stout, um, you know, all these words here to just kind of say they become lazy about everything related to the kingdom of God. And in so doing, right, they are scoffing at the rock of his salvation, right? They're uh, mocking and treating lightly the very thing that has saved them, namely God, right? And so I think in these two terms here, you really get like, again, if you are, you know, if you were a Hebrew speaking person, I think the image that we've been dealing with is the same one you would get here where you'd almost get, you know, but this one who was supposed 
you know, supposed to be upright scoffed at the one who is upright, right? And if you want to put that back into the straight and crooked kind of idea, I think that would be fitting here as well. Yeah, I mean, you see those two terms side by side in verse 15, Jeshurun and then rock, and the, the contrast of what Israel should have been and compared to what they were, is it couldn't be greater. But for our section today, then Moses really emphasizes the matter of idolatry as the, the place where they started or they went crooked all wrong. Take us into to the idolatry that's described in these, these last couple of verses. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, certainly idolatry is an issue for the whole, you know, story of God's people. Right? We could say right up into the present, right? We just uh, got finished uh, studying First John here. And, you know, uh, in the end of that book, right, he just says, little children, keep yourself from idols is yeah. sort of a overall statement of what the Christian faith, right? The living out of the Christian faith is. Uh, so this is, you know, all over the place. But I think, again, particularly, we get this sad thing, right, that God uh, is giving to his people rest in the promised land. And part of that is that they are to drive out all these other nations with all their other gods so that there won't even be the temptation to that kind of outright idolatry. And yet the people of God don't complete that task. And the next thing we know, they're, you know, starting to mix perhaps their um, beliefs with other nations' beliefs. And then before you know it, they're just outright joining in in the worship of these false gods who are really no gods, right? Uh, they're, they're demons, not gods, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting phrase to consider just even in our modern application, right? Because I think we often say these other gods are no gods, right? But it takes it a step further to say that what they are is a demonic force, right? So they it's not that they're nothing in the sense of they don't have a power. Uh, they, they shouldn't be uh, looked at with, you know, um, guide or with, uh, uh, sorry, being guarded uh, in regards to them. They should, right? Because they're demonic. And yet the point we want to make at the same time, but they're not gods, right? There's only one of those, right? Uh, but I, I think here, you know, again, so it's it, particularly in the promised land, this idolatry, which if there's any place there should not be idolatry, it should be the people of God living in the promised land of God. And yet keep reading, there's going to be plenty of it. And again, keep reading all the way up into our lives and there's plenty of it still. Yeah, I think the in verse 17, where Moses sings that they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, in that simple phrase, you do get the, the scriptural attitude toward idolatry, that on the one hand, they're not real, and so they're not something to be feared and can even be mocked, as you see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 44, where where, I mean, that's one of the places in the Old Testament, particularly, where idolatry is mocked, is just foolish and and completely ridiculous that you would even consider. And so on the one hand, it's, you know, they're not real and you can mock them. But on the other hand, recognize what the devil's up to in idolatry and don't mess around with it. You know, understand the great danger that is there at, to your soul if you dabble in it and to those who who have fallen into it. I mean, I think you see that it's a wonderful scriptural balance there toward our, our, our attitude toward idolatry and the way that we recognize, yeah, it's not real, we're not going to mess around with it because the devil will work great harm through it. It's a very important point there. And then in, in verse 18, you know, at least to, to wrap up our section for today, Moses tells them, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. 
and you forgot the God who gave you birth. There we, we have that life-giving image attached to the rock again, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, what, what's striking about, about this, and I think this is true throughout the book of Deuteronomy, in several places, you see that the people of Israel become unfaithful, or, the, or Moses warns them about becoming unfaithful, when they're very prosperous. And that's what's happening here in verse 15. Jeshurun has grown fat and kicked. They're fat, stout, and sleek. They've got everything, but they're falling into idolatry. Why is that such a danger that it shows up here again? Well, yeah, I think we do see this, like you said, all over the scriptures and then, you know, again, uh, into the modern day, right? And it is this sad thing, right? Because it's, you know, God loves to give, give gifts, uh, and he does so, right? And he gives uh, sometimes gifts in just great abundance because uh, he and his people are at one, right? Uh, are, are one, I guess I should say, are at peace is what I was going to say at the beginning. And when those times are good, right, he loves to just pour out all these blessings. And again, what you would think is the people would live in, in thankfulness and obedience, but time and time again, uh, God finds that when he does this, then he uh, again sees laziness, uh, apathy grow. Uh, I was studying today also um, Amos for, for an upcoming uh, one of the lectionary readings here for this week on the on the three year cycle, or I, I should say the week we're recording. Um, and, uh, you know, you get there too. this picture of these people that are, you know, stretching out on their ivory beds and their couches and they're drinking wine. Right. And again, all of those things, how did you get all those? Well, by the grace of God, right. By the provision of God, they have that prosperity. And yet as they sit there, they end up falling away from the faith. And this is the exact same thing here, right. That, um, and usually what we see in the Bible is God eventually then has to remove these gifts that he gave uh, in order to return people's attention to him, to call them to repentance. Um, and certainly, you know, I think uh, it is hard to read these passages without doing a little reflection upon our own um, situation as Americans, right? And uh, again, uh, you know, we always want to make perfectly clear that the situation with Israel and America is definitely of a different nature in the sense of Israel being God's chosen nation, right, uh, in the Old Testament. But America, we while we don't want to give it that same status, we do have to recognize that God certainly poured out much prosperity and blessing upon this nation and its citizens, right? And we have to ask too, how has that went for us, right? Are we, uh, are we the ones that are the, the straight and narrow or two, have we grown fat and kicked at God and, you know, kind of, uh, done scoffed at him ultimately, uh, even though he gave us, you know, life. That's right. Yeah. And so from a song, a song like this, there is room for us to repent, to recognize our own tendencies toward idolatry, to forgetting the Lord, and yet constantly looking to the rock who is our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the foundation on whom we are built. Pastor Philip Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas, helping us today with Deuteronomy 31, verse 30 through chapter 32, verse 18. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to be with you.
I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy or our upcoming study on the book of Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.